You know what? It's actually, it's not ambition, it's fear. <laughs> it's actually that I'm scared I'm gonna die one day, which I am, and I'm like, I wanna suck the marrow out of every possible moment. So if I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it right. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. The moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to lose. That was a million dollars, over a million dollars lost. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have innovative business thinker and author of Matter, Peter Sheehan, as he shares how to find your eureka moment, the power of working through the complex to get to the simple, and how Burberry has kept itself relevant for over a century. So with Peter Sheehan, he has the number one most important thing that you have to have in order to be a successful speaker, and that is a cool Australian accent. But then after that, what he has is this uncanny ability in a business sense to just see through the mist of what's all going around, kind of the business fog of war that you have there to get to what the heart of a matter is, that he can look into a situation. He, he researches like crazy, has a whole huge staff, but just the smart way that he goes about seeing what the issues are, solving problems, working through those things, and just really getting to the focus of it. So, so in talking to Peter, I asked him, you know, how do you see things differently? What's kind of the way that you approach problems that's so unique? Well, I'd say firstly, I'm inherently curious, right? So I don't, I'm not interested in understanding what's happening on the surface level. I really want to dig deep. And so if I'm doing a job, uh, speaking a presentation for someone, I'm not interested in tell me the top three things that you want to achieve. I want to know the ins and outs of that industry and what's going on, right? And when you consider how much of that kind of work I've done over the years, that ability to connect the dots comes because I've done all of that work. So I think number one is get below the surface area. I think number two is bring in disparate viewpoints from other industries and other cases. So I was working with credit unions yesterday, yeah? And they're all trying to compare one credit union to the next. And the point I was trying to make was actually the expectations a credit union member is gonna have is not gonna be based on one credit union to the next, but based on any retailer that they're doing business with. And so that ability to see outside of your four walls, I think is really critical. And then I'd say third is, a saying we have at Carrican's group called, do the hard work, don't just work hard, right? Because all of us are busy and we're all working hard. But the hard work is the synthesis. The hard work is the moving from simplistic through complex to simple. And so if people, and I appreciate that compliment, say I have the ability to connect dots, I think it's one, the curiosity, two, bringing in multiple viewpoints, but three, it's really investing at that last stage to get through the complex and towards the simple. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that comes from? kind of your, your background of wanting to be curious or wanting to do the hard work? Um, it probably comes from amb like ambition, to be <laughs> honest. Like um, uh, my uh, family and friends call me insatiable. They're like, it doesn't matter how much Pete achieves or what he does or how fast the car is or how wild his life is. He always wants another level, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think taking that energy and putting it towards everything that I do. My th you know what? It's, actually, it's not ambition, it's fear. <laughs> it's actually that I'm scared I'm going to die one day, which I am. And yeah. I'm like, I want to suck the marrow out of every possible moment. So if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. So I'd say a combination of ambition and fear, probably. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't taking this ambition and fear towards making it into, you know, applying it to help, you know, businesses or people have this transformation, where do you think it would go? 
oh, I'd be clubbing in Ibiza or you know, <laughs> partying in Berlin or lost somewhere in Moscow, right? Um, no, seriously, yeah, I would be. I would, I'm kind of red light, green light, so I, uh, I, I have a lot of energy that has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Although I was asked this question recently, which was if I couldn't do this, but I had to do another job, what would I do? Mm-hmm. I'd probably do design, like interior design or something like that. I, have, mm-hmm. I love it. I love mm-hmm. like making things work and colors and... I'm not sure I should admit that in public, but that's the truth. (laughs) Um, When when do you find like a eureka moment? So you do a whole lot of work for every event that you do. You've got, you're showing us earlier these dossiers that are just, you know, this thick. And and, um, where is it where you kind of find that aha moment? Like this will make a difference to the people there. Ah, wow. So in the preparation process, it's usually when you get the framing right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we have a rich repertoire of case studies from work we've done, clients we've partnered with, or, or companies we've studied. So one of the, the great assets that, one of the great assets that I personally have and Carapin's group has is we've done the work and we understand it, right? And so it's not that hard to find the right case studies to, to tell, but it's hard to find the master frame for how you're gonna organize them. Because early in that presentation, if the audience isn't going, oh my gosh, I need exactly what he's about to tell me, then you're gonna find it very hard to engage them and influence them along the way. So I think that's the first aha moment is when you get the, here's the pain point and here's how we're gonna help you solve it. Like if you get that framing right. I think the real ahas though, like the, the magic happens when you're no longer thinking about what you're trying to say, you're obsessed with the outcome you're trying to create. And in that moment, you get into a dance with that audience where like a beautiful, like a really powerful presentation can be quite out of body, actually. And I don't mean that in an eso- too, in too esoteric a, a fashion. I mean, quite literally, I can say things that I've never thought of before or written before or didn't prep that are exactly what that audience needs in that moment. And they feel that and I feel that. And I'd say they're the biggest aha moments is when you know, you're in the dance with the audience instead of I'm here presenting. And it's interesting, you know, for the event planners, uh, watching you don't get there when they're in the dark and you're in the light and when you're up on the stage and they're down there like so much one of the things that always frustrates me is we design settings to disconnect the speaker from the audience or the presenter from the audience and i've never had a a real aha moment when i feel disconnected from an audience so i always get the house lights up i get off that stage and i want to feel like i'm part of that and so i actually i hadn't thought of this but i wonder whether that's something for event planners to think about, which is how do you create a greater connectedness between the audience, the content, and the, the speaker physically, mm-hmm. not just in terms of getting the framing right. The, the quote from the book is, uh, you need to judge yourself by your impact, not by your intentions. It's not a speaker going up there like, man, I want to do a good job today. It's how do you know that you did a good job today? And I wonder how that goes into what you do, how that goes to the event planners, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that, that was actually Dr. Peter Futer who told me that and helped me understand that idea, which is um, the real judge of quality communication and the real jo- judge of a job well done is not whether you wanted it to be good, it's was it good, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the first thing is to keep that as your, as your standard. Mm-hmm. It's, I have had enough times where I've gotten off stage and felt like my impact wasn't aligned to my intention. And I, that feeling of dissonance is where the ambition to improve comes from, right? Like someone said to me once, how did you get good at speaking? I said, oh, I sucked enough to not want to go through the pain anymore. (laughs) You know, I just was lucky enough that I sucked in front of audiences that weren't, like this is 15 years ago and I would, you know, people weren't paying for that experience at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think first is to have that standard. I think the second is to be willing to get honest with yourself after a, a program of going, where did I nail that and where didn't I nail that? And what role did I play in the disconnect? And 
you know, thankfully that doesn't happen a great deal if you do the work in advance. But I, I would hazard a guess when people don't, it probably does happen. I have actually come, I've come up against the challenge at times of over-customizing a message, believe it or not. Right, we all say we want the speaker to customize and I'm like, I'm the king of that, right? But there are some times when actually you need to be bringing your worldview on an external worldview and not pretending you know everything about the audience and their business just because you might have spent a week or two like I might going deep and you might have read everything about it. And I occasionally an audience will say, oh my God, you know more about us than we know about ourselves. That's not really true, mm -hmm. right? Like they, they're living and sleeping and breathing it every day. And so I think part of getting the impact right is understanding the balance of the external worldview and the internal worldview and the difference between a perspective and an opinion in their world. How do you know when you matter? Uh, two things. Number one, you're able to compete beyond price, meaning the way... Now, everyone competes on price. Mm -hmm. There's not an industry in the world where price sensitivity doesn't exist. But as long as you're within the realm of possibility, mm -hmm. are you winning on something other than having the cheapest deal? Mm -hmm. Like whether it be service or ease or that you're solving a more important problem or meaning and purpose. Like there are some attributes that really win there, number one. And then number two is... Have you built a relationship with your partners where they're vested in your success rather than just in their own success? And a good example was um, in recent years, we've seen a couple of major acquisitions fail. I remember a big uh, cable company tried to buy another cable company. And I, I heard from a senator, 100,000 customers wrote in and were really? like, do not give this organization any more power than they've currently got. <laughs> and they were like, vehemently opposed to it. And then another telecommunications company made a similar bid for a, a size acquisition, different asset at the time, and it went through without a hitch. Mm -hmm. And the difference between those two organizations is the customer was actually wanted their, that telecommunications company to be successful. Does that make sense? Like they were vested and they wanted them to win and grow and have a bigger impact and have a bigger role in their life. Whereas this cable, they wanted the opposite for this cable company and so that's the second thing we discovered was if they're not really vested in helping you to be a better version of you and they don't want you to grow and them grow win-win style then there's no way you're going to really resonate in their hearts and their minds how do you um so you know we do work with event planners a lot and a lot of times event planners are kind of conduits of ceos so this question is more to you know what you would say to a ceo but how do you know when your company matters and how do you get there well there's 385 pages worth of an answer to that question, right? Like, I mean, we spent five years and a million bucks on that research. That's a, yeah. that's a difficult question to answer in 30 yeah. seconds or less. So I think the first thing is to take an honest and objective view of what's changing and disrupting your market and your industry and what might happen, right? Um, Booz, before PwC bought them, did a study of 1,034 companies who'd lost more than 10% of their market value compared to their peers and tried to figure out what the risk factor was that drove the destruction of value. And in more than 80% of all the value destroyed was strategic risk. That is the inability of the executive team and the board and the CEO to make intelligent decisions in the face of a changing environment. So the first thing is to get a really objective view of that. And what the companies we studied did was what we called elevate their perspective. Mm -hmm. They moved towards the very things that were disrupting them and begun to get a more data and market-driven sense of what was and was not real, what would and would not happen. Does that make sense? So rather than sitting on a whiteboard to figure it out, they would create trials and pilots and co-create things with their marketplace to see if they could figure out where it was going, number one. 
Number two was use that elevated perspective, that vision of the future, that sort of view of where things might go to elevate their relationships they had to. So, you know, for one CEO to work with another CEO or for sales to be selling at the C-level rather than selling down the, the line to procurement, like getting into more meaningful strategic conversations in their marketplace or in whether it be their buyer or their supplier or whomever that was with, right? Because people who can say no but can't say yes, say no, right? Like you have to be playing at the right level <laughs> right. in the organization. And then the third thing was, when your elevated perspective plus your elevated relationship presents a really clear opportunity to do something new, interesting, and almost become the disruptor, do you have the courage to have an elevated impact, which is to take the risks, do the work, make the investments, hold the nerve in these new and radical kind of spaces. And so those three chunks were the big three sort of steps on the journey that we, we uncovered from the research. One of the things that you, in, in reading the book that comes out a lot is, is that they had to have that courage to change. So, you know, you, you talk about one where it's this, you know, company that's more of a fashion company that used to make trench coats and now they have to compete. How do you respect kind of that history? Because whether it's a 160 year history or whether yeah. it's a 20 year history, how do you respect that history and then still change? So we call that offensive and defensive, right? That is, these organizations were defensive. They did protect the core. And their brand you're referencing is Burberry. And, the, you know, the trench coat is still the kind of heartbeat of that company, right? And bricks and mortar remains their primary channel to market, which was holding on to the core, right? And they have innovated around that product and they've innovated around its appeal and they've innovated around the bricks and mortar experience and what that looks like. But at the same time, they're on the offensive, which is around digital disruption and omni-channel retail and, and customer segments of one, which turned out to be their three edges of disruption, as we call them, right? And it's this notion that you get to protect the core, but not at, in the absence of going on the offensive. And that, I think, is the, the key trade-off, is you don't have to burn the boats and jump overnight. Um, but you do have to do both, right? Which is the first thing. Two is, um, the earlier you move, the smaller the risk has to be. Does that make sense? Like the longer, the more you wait for a burning platform, the longer you wait for disruption to really um, extract all the available margin and create disintermediation or to create disengagement in your market, the harder it's gonna be to transform. And that's what really happens is these guys hold on and protect their core and forget the offensive bit. And they do that for too long. And then change, which is really slow until it's not. And once it speeds up, you're in trouble. I mean, everyone talks about Uber. Oh my God, Uber's four years old. It's taken up. Uber's 11 years old right now, mm. as we speak. 11, wow. right? Nothing, 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 boom. If you're a transportation company, the time to get ready for that disintermediation would have been seven or eight years ago. Protect the core, protect the core, protect, that'll never happen. Protect the core, protect the core. If those companies had taken small compartmentalized risks on the offensive, they wouldn't have had an issue. They would have protected the core and positioned themselves for the future, but they were five years too late. Now, this is one last question here, and I know this is something you like to do your research. I don't know if you've done research on this, but in looking at event planners, if you're saying this is here it is, and it's gonna change, is there any maybe one thing that event planners, if they're preparing for, or that you would say, hey, you need to keep your eye on this because it's been growing for a little while? I think there's a couple. I think number one is um, the millennial generation are not joining associations and attending events in the way they, that the baby boomers did. Like we are seeing the kind of the aging of that audience base, right? Which means we have to figure out how to create experiences, face-to-face -face experiences that are appealing to that group. I think two, and we've seen event planners move in this direction, is to see the experience 
as bigger than just the event. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like it should be a 365 day experience of which there just happens to be one face-to-face culmination of that journey, right? And the concept of content living beyond the event and the, the community living beyond the event, I don't think we figured that out yet. And I think that is gonna to continue to be a demand um, on not just event planners, but associations and organizations doing that work. And I think third out of that will be, if we're gonna create content and an experience that lives on beyond the event, then we should be demanding more from our resources. Shocking to me how little event planners demand from their speakers. Shocking. And in fact, I've had issues where I'm like, why don't we do this? Why don't we publish that? Why don't we create some social media? Why don't we do it? Oh, no, we're good. Just come up and speak sharp and get off. And you're just like, fine, you know? So, yeah, this meta, I get that there's complexity of that and you don't want to create friction for an event planner. It's a hard enough job. But I think whilst we're struggling for relevance with the emerging generation, whilst their business is looking for bigger ROI and return on their meeting spend. And whilst we have these assets, not just paid speakers, but even executive and industry speakers, we should be doing more with that. And I've seen some great examples of, of event planners and, and meeting planners doing that. But I'd say they're the big three that just from the outside seem to be emerging for me. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.